Please be seated. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope has built. If that's an accurate definition of a religious nut, (laughs) sign me up. And I would urge you to sign up as well. Uh, Thanks, Chris, once again for for your amazing message. That will be the best message people hear today. I'm very confident. And thank you also to our children for singing today. It, It sort of struck me seeing all of you here and all of them here and that I probably should be ashamed of myself in in some sense of of dangling kids in front of you so you'll come and listen to me preach. (laughs) Kind of like, you you know, free coffee or something. I don't know. You can watch your kids sing and they're so cute and so talented and so wonderful. And oh, by the way, It'll be embarrassing if you get up and leave so you have to hang around and listen to some guy talk for a while. I remember the shocked look on my friend's faces at our youth ministry staff meeting many years ago. We were talking about the things that we loved doing. I was in seminary and most of them were in college. What I really love doing, I said, is studying. No one else around the table seemed to share that particular passion. I love the world of ideas. I enjoy learning new things. I love seeing how logical thoughts fit together like puzzle pieces. Or how a broad truth is made up of many smaller ideas connected to one another. For me, this is exciting. And this is all the better when the learning is about things that are truly important and ideas that are truly big. And ideas are never bigger, and the learning is never more important than when they are about the living God. I suppose this is part of why I became a preacher. I joyfully accept the challenge of making sense out of the Bible. And the challenge, by the way, is not that the Bible doesn't make sense on its own, but that we sinful human interpreters do not tend to be sensible on our own. These are also reasons why I especially appreciate the book of Romans. Romans is a a kind of no-stone-unturned presentation of the Christian faith. The theme verse as we've been sharing and you've heard other people share about and you will hear more, comes from the first chapter, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. By the way, that means everybody because everybody's either a Jew or a a non-Jew. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. What is this gospel, this euangelion, this positive message, this good news, this power of God for salvation, of which Paul is not ashamed and keen to proclaim at every opportunity? 
Well, for 16 chapters, the apostle is going to give his best effort to present a clear, complete, and compelling answer to this question. For 28 weeks from last year and through this year, we are going to try to understand what Paul was saying and what it all means for us today. We're at week 11 and we're up to the last half of chapter 5. In the first half of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul anticipates questions about the new life in Christ marked by a couple of amazing new realities. First, new privileges now and into eternity. Peace with God and God's grace to stand upon. God's grace to to form our lives upon and live our lives upon. And then new reasons for rejoicing. Real hope for future glory. Suffering that always produces benefits to us and God himself in our lives. A God we can rejoice in rather than one we must desperately try to appease in vain. How do we know these things are true? Paul helps us with that also in the first half of chapter 5. We know these things are true because first of all of the subjective witness which is the Holy Spirit within us. But not just that, also the objective witness, which is the historical reality of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, a fact of history. In the second half of this chapter, Paul anticipates another question, and he leaves no stone unturned. Listen now to the word of God, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, 
so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Paul for how you inspired him and gifted him to write these letters that now are part of your word to us, even here today, 2,000 years later. We pray that you would help us to apply our minds well to what you are sharing here, that we might think your thoughts after you and receive your truth and act upon it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul here, I think, anticipates another question, and that is this. How can one person's sacrifice bring such an enormous blessing of life to so many people? Paul's answer, at least to begin with, goes something like this. Hey, wait a minute. This is not such a strange concept. This is not the first time we've seen one person's action have an enormous and far-reaching effect on people. The pattern we see in Jesus Christ, one person having a universal effect on all of humanity, was established long ago, and we've all experienced it. Through one man's sin, we have all received the enormous and far-reaching curse of sin, and that curse is death. There is an important similarity between the first man, Adam, and Jesus, who is also called the second Adam or the new Adam. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, verse 12, and then verse 18, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. This comparison is significant and true. It helps Paul advance the idea of the breadth and saving power of the gospel. Jesus' work is universal. It is not just for the children of Abraham, Abraham who was Paul's example of faith in God's righteousness from chapter 4 of Romans. It is for the children of Adam and Eve, for all humanity. Listen to what James Edwards says about this in his Romans commentary. At the bedrock of existence, all humanity holds a common hope in life and faces a common enemy in death. The ultimacy of human destiny relegates ethnic and even religious disputes to penultimate categories. But this comparison also causes a dilemma for Paul. Are Adam and Jesus equivalent? Are they two sides of the same coin? Are they yin and yang, spirit brothers of God? Jesus and his dark twin, Adam? 
C.E.B. Cranfield responds, Paul wants to draw the comparison between Christ and Adam and indeed must draw it in order to bring out clearly the universal significance of Christ's work but is vividly conscious of the danger of its being misunderstood. Sin and grace are not equivalents, nor yet death and life, nor yet the devil and God. But the difference between them is infinite. So Paul anticipates some more questions before he finishes in verse 18, what he begins in verse 12. He actually interrupts his comparison of verse 12 mid-sentence. Before we say Jesus is like Adam in one way, we must establish that he is not like Adam at all in many more important ways. First, the motive behind Adam and Christ's work is completely different. The gift is not like the trespass. Trespass is a word of uh, is a deed of sin. The word used here means literally a deviation from the path. Adam knew where he was supposed to go. He knew the right path and he chose to stray from it. He knew what God wanted from him and he decided to say no. Adam's sin was an act of self-assertion, to use John Stott's phrase. Why did Adam do what he did? He wanted to do his own thing, his own way. I did it my way. Yeah, that, 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 that was him. Others apparently have picked up on that idea. <laughs> Though they probably didn't work very, need to work very hard to popularize it. Gift, on the other hand, indicates an act of grace. Charisma is the word in Greek, a grace gift. Jesus knew where he was to go. He knew what his father was asking of him. He knew the great cost. And he said, yes. Jesus' gift was an act of self-sacrifice. Why did Jesus do what he did? He wanted to do the saving will of his father. He delighted to do things his father's way, the way of giving, of grace, of love. The effect of Adam and Christ's work is totally different. Here's what Adam's sin brought to his descendants. The many died. Judgment followed one sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Death reigned through that one man. What could be worse than what happened because of Adam? And what did the completed work of Jesus bring? What happened as a result of the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? God's grace overflowed to the many. The gift followed many trespasses. The gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. 
What could be better than what happened because of Jesus? Adam and Jesus, summarizing the difference. Christ's gift is gracious. Adam's sin was deadly. Christ's gift was much bigger than Adam's sin. In Adam, we are all condemned. In Jesus, those who believe are justified. Adam brought the reign of death to all humanity. Jesus lifts his followers and shares his glorious reign in life with them. And it is not just a replacement of one reign over us, deaths, for another's, life's. It is not life that reigns because of Jesus. It is we who reign. John Stott. Formerly death was our king. Death reigned over us and we were its subjects, slaves under its totalitarian tyranny. We do not now exchange death's kingdom for another kingdom so that we remain slaves and subjects, although in a different sense, no. Once delivered from the rule of death, we begin ourselves to rule over death and all the enemies of God. We cease to be subjects and become kings, sharing the kingship of Christ. And it, and it strikes me that you heard about that in, in Chris's testimony today. Uh, and thinking about what he shared. The, the, the word that he spoke to himself. He said to himself, I'm not going to be a religious nut like my father. Sorry. You said it. And the other thing, the next thing he said when he was sharing with us that I caught, I hope you did too, is he thought he was alone in his room speaking only to himself. But Jesus was there with him. Amen? And Jesus didn't just slap him down. But as he implied, Jesus with him brought Chris to the place where he was able to reign over the falsehood and foolishness that had captured his young mind. Did you catch that? He got to the place where he could reign over sin and death in his own life together with Jesus. Amazing. This empowering, this freeing, this dignifying is what Jesus does that's very different, very different than what every other princip- every principality and power in this world does. What could be more different than the effects of Adam and Christ's behavior? The nature of Adam and Christ's work is absolutely different. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Adam's work was a trespass, an offense against God. Jesus' work was righteousness, an expression of obedience to God in right relationship to him. Adam's deed was a failure to keep the law. Jesus' life and death was a fulfillment of the law. 
For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Adam's sin was disobedience. Jesus' work was obedience. John Stott again. Adam disobeyed the will of God and so fell from righteousness. Christ obeyed the will of God and so fulfilled all righteousness. So there are two final stones for us to turn over here concerning this text. A couple of other issues that that I think are important for us to address before we uh, say amen here. First is the issue of original sin. Adam and us. What does it mean that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sinned? Another way of asking this question is why do we suffer the consequences of somebody else's wrongdoing? Though who of us hasn't experienced this in lesser ways if we stop and think about it? Who suffers when a tyrannical ruler wants more land? Who suffers when a man decides he is going to drink and drive? Several answers have been given through the years to this question and they tend to fall into three basic categories. First, some would say original sin is not hereditary. Adam is simply the bad example everyone chooses to follow. We all choose to sin, but theoretically, though never actually, we don't have to. This is a position that is associated with a famous uh, theological heretic, at least that's what the church called him way back when, named Pelagius. A A second view is that all men since Adam are born into sin. We all, with Adam, in his loins, is the way um, someone said it, became guilty sinners when he sinned. This view is uh, connected with another great theologian of the past who wasn't called a heretic, and he was uh, named St. Augustine. And then a third position is sort of a mysterious combination of the two, another expression of the mystery of the interaction between divine will and human will, between the inevitability of sin and human responsibility for sin, uh, both of which are true. Is it Adam's fault or mine? The biblical answer is yes. (laughs) Paul expresses this very economically, preserving the mystery, balancing our personal responsibility with our fallen human solidarity with our oldest ancestor. In this way, he says, death came to all men because all sinned. In verse 12. And then in verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. We are what we are because of Adam. In a real and humanly irreversible way, we all fell with him. In Adam, we all became sinners, and we cannot, in our own fleshly strength, be anything else. It's sort of like, the best analogy I could come up with is this. Why am I a white guy? Because I can't be anything else. And is that my parents' fault or mine? 
but if I had different parents, and then maybe I could be a different race. But if I had different parents and I was a different race, I wouldn't be me. Similarly, if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't be descendants of Adam. And if we weren't descendants of Adam, we wouldn't be human. It is all of my humanity that must be changed from the depths of my soul and out from there. It is all of all humanity that must be redone or die. And only Jesus is up to this task. And it is also true that we are what we are because of ourselves. We are sinners and we choose to sin like Adam before us. All sinned and keep on sinning. So very practically, as well as theologically, Augustine was mostly right, but our solidarity with Adam in no way removes our own personal responsibility for our own sinful acts and our own human condition. So too, Pelagius, we would say, was mostly wrong in his overly optimistic view of human nature, but still he appropriately affirms the real capacity for goodness we still possess and the legitimate call to righteous living God still gives. The reformers, like John Calvin, came along later and spoke of the, quote, total depravity of the human race. By this, they did not mean that every one of us was always as bad as we could possibly be. Instead, they were referring to the truth that we are never as good as we should be and especially that we are never capable of saving ourselves from sin and death. Only Jesus is up to that task. So another stone to to uh, flip over here that has to do with sin and rules Uh, or as I like to say it the gracious gift of the brutal law the law didn't cause sin for before the law was given sin was in the world Paul says in verse 13 how do we know Death, which came as a result of sin, reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. People were born and people died. The problem that sin, uh, that, that Paul points out, is that sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Without the law, before the law, sin is not taken as seriously by people as it should have been. It brought death. It brings death. And still people tended to think it wasn't too big of a deal. The law is a gift. It brings the seriousness of sin to light. It reveals our deep need for inner change, for salvation. I would point out that it would probably be good for us to note the reversing effects of our culture of moral relativism that is teaching us and teaching our children that sin is no big deal. Denying the importance and even the reality of sin. Promoting the view that the law and those who would impose it upon us, especially for, quote, religious reasons, those religious nuts, are the real enemy 
rather than our own sin. So let me conclude with this. One final crucial word from the comparison of Adam and Jesus. Something lasts forever. Death or life. We are children of Adam alone or we are brothers and sisters of Christ also. And it's a matter of death and life. James Edwards again from his commentary, to be human is to stand at a crossroads of choice. There is the way of the past, the way of death, or the way of the future, the way of life in Christ. There is the first Adam, and there is the last Adam. But that is only the human perspective. Paul writes from the divine perspective, assuring us that the influence and effect of Christ's work defeat the tragic effects of Adam's trespass. The sin of one is canceled by the righteousness of the other. The curse of one is overcome by the grace of the other. The one causes death. The other swallows up death in life. In every way, Christ surpasses Adam. And then finally from John Stott again, one of my heroes of the faith. So then, whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which humanity we belong to. Whether we belong to the old humanity initiated by Adam or to the new humanity initiated by Christ. And this in turn depends on our relation to Adam and to Christ. We need to get this quite clear. All men are in Adam, since we are in Adam by birth. But not all men are in Christ, since we can be in Christ only by faith. In Adam by birth, we are condemned and die. But if we are in Christ by faith, we are justified and live. I'm tempted to do an altar call at this point. It isn't really our style. But I'm, but I'm going to say this. If for you, you, you do not know yourself to be in Christ, or if, or if you're worried about that, if, you, if there's a question about that for you, I would urge you to come and talk to me. You can find me. I'm going to be around here eating lunch and bidding on desserts and having meetings and stuff. Um, you can just come and say, hey, Pastor Jay, I, I'd, I'd like to talk to you sometime. And I'll, I'll grab your name. I'll grab your phone number. And we'll talk. You could also just grab one of our elders. And you can, you can spot them by the glow that they have. Um. Or just ask somebody else, hey, do you know any of the elders around here? And they would be delighted to do the same for you, um, to talk with you if, if, uh, if you want to talk with one of them. I, 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 want, you to, I want you to know that, that this is real stuff. It's not just for religious nuts. Frankly, look, we got a choice. You can be a religious nut or you can be an irreligious nut. 
but there is no other category. We're all nuts. <laughs> and it is, a, it is a diabolical illusion to think that to be religious or to actually believe this stuff makes you a nut rather than a sane person like everybody else. It's actually quite the opposite. And if there's any way that I, that we, can help anyone here uh, to move and to know themselves to be moved by the completed work of Jesus and not by your own effort, from knowing yourself to be destined for eternal death and know yourself to be destined for eternal life securely because it's secured by Jesus, not by us. Uh, We want to do that. I want to do that. All right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together here. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us that we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and in the teaching of Paul. Lord, we're all in Adam. We all are rightly condemned to death because of sin. But we can be now and forever also and especially in Christ. That the universal work of our Lord and Savior is applied to us and means life eternal, which is what you made us for. Lord, help us. Help us to know that. Help us to live in that joy and freedom and truth and wholeness and health that you offer and you make real. I pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen.